We didn't make it through Timothy and Titus last week, so I'd like to complete that. And then at the end of our time, answer a question that came up last week that I didn't feel like I answered very well. Um, so we'll, we'll spend um, our, a little bit of our time finishing up on Timothy and Titus. So you may have, have a handout from last week. If not, there should be one there on your table. You can follow along. We're, we're in Titus right now. And we've come to the three lessons from Titus on the doctrine, on doctrines and deeds. But uh, let me pray first, then we'll summarize where we've been, and then we'll uh, continue. Father, we thank you for the preservation of your word that you have allowed it to be kept for us after generations of it being passed down and that it's been translated into our language and several different versions so that we can have a good good comprehension of what the original likely looked like. And we thank you for the tools that you've given us in order that we can study your word. We're thankful for the church that is the pillar and support of truth. And we pray that you would help us to do our part to oppose error and stand up for sound doctrine. We pray that you would help us to think rightly about your word this morning and that we would um, take what we believe from your word, not from necessarily from what we have always been taught or, or from our own traditions that we have seen for ourselves, but that we would see it from your word ourselves and then apply it to how we live in our church and in our lives personally. We pray that you give us wisdom as we do so. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, the the letters of Timothy and Titus are letters regarding the Word of God. And we said um, that all three of these were written by the Apostle Paul. First Timothy was written to, in order for Paul to show the people how they ought to protect the Gospel. And then, um, so we we saw that that includes both practice and, and orthodoxy, or practice and doctrine that church leadership is much more demanding than glamorous, that ministry is the maintaining of a balance between commitment and contentment. And then we started into Titus, which was also written by Paul in the mid-60s A.D. And he wrote to Titus in order to show Titus how to set things in order in the church. Remember, there were some problems with the, the people who were living there at Crete. And Paul wanted to show Timothy how to set things in order. And so he wants him to stand up against false teaching, false Christian living. And in order to do so, he, he needs to put things in order and teach people how to live. That's what Titus chapter 2 is about. And um, that each person in the church is supposed to be a model for others to follow. Now, three lessons from Titus on doctrine and deeds. Number one, Deeds either defend or deny our doctrine. Okay, our actions, our deeds. They either defend or deny our doctrine. Your life is your doctrine on display. And that's why we take so much time at this church to understand the doctrines of the Scripture. The basic fundamental truths of the Bible. Because... You can't live practically rightly unless you understand what, what you are to be doing and, and why you're supposed to be doing that. And that's why doctrine is so important. Paul says in chapter 1, verse 16, that they profess to know God, but by their deeds they deny Him. A healthy church is to teach people to live a lifestyle consistent with the Gospel. It's not enough to, to know what is right. It's not enough to do what is right. Both of those things have to be done. You have to both know and do. And so there's a, a very practical emphasis on doctrine in this, in this book. Um, second thing that we learned from, this, from these two chapters in Titus is that grace elevates godliness. Grace elevates godliness. It does not cheapen it. It elevates godliness. It doesn't cheapen it. When we walk in grace, we grow in godliness. Why does Paul put so much emphasis on 
living out our doctrine. Chapter 2, he says, so that the word will not be dishonored, verse 5. Later on, he says, so that the opponent will be ashamed, having nothing bad to say, verse 8. Verse 10, he says, so that they will adorn the doctrine of God. Turn to chapter 2, verse 11 of Titus. Because if we knew the Cretans personally, there would be no reason to think that such a crude and rebellious group of people, remember what was said about them, that they're all liars, right? In chapter 1, so that all Cretans are liars. Cretans are always liars, evil beasts, lazy gluttons. So, if we knew them, we would think, well, how could there be any good in these people? Look at chapter 2, verse 11. For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation to all men, instructing us to deny ungodliness and worldly desires and to live sensibly, righteously, and godly in the present age, looking for the blessed hope and the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Christ Jesus. The grace of God teaches us to live godly lives. And that's what it should do. Isn't that the very purpose that Christ died wasn't just to rescue you from hell, but to, to teach you to live how to live a godly life. Look at verse fourteen. Who, that is, see the last two words in verse thirteen, Christ Jesus, who gave himself for us to redeem us from every lawless deed and to purify for himself a people for his own possession, zealous for good deeds. When Christ saved you, he didn't simply rescue you from the fire of hell, but He saved you to purify you, to to be righteous. And so that means that our lives are to be living letters that, that when people see us, we they should recognize um, the, the life-giving soil upon which we stand. The soil of the Scriptures. And it should... Uh, it should be more than simply our profession, but it should be the way that we live. Our lifestyle should match our doctrine. Number three. Third lesson we learned from Titus chapter 2 and 3 is that God's kindness toward us and His love for us change the way that we act. God's kindness and His love for us change the way that we act. If we understand the Gospel, then it should change the way that we live. Look at chapter 3, verse 3. For we also once were foolish ourselves, disobedient, deceived, enslaved to various lusts and pleasures, spending our life in malice and envy, hateful, hating one another. But when the kindness of God our Savior and His love for mankind appeared, He saved us, not on the basis of deeds which we have done in righteousness, but according to His mercy, by the washing of regeneration and renewing by the Holy Spirit, whom He poured out upon us richly through Jesus Christ our Savior, so that being justified by His grace, we would be made heirs according to the hope of eternal life. This is a trustworthy statement, and concerning these things I want you to speak confidently so that those who have believed God will be careful to engage in good deeds. These things are good and profitable for men. We should remember the Gospel when we seek to instruct and, and admonish other people. When we come across the undesirable type things in our culture, we should remember where we came from, the awesome depths from which God saved us. And, um, and that should result in, in a great love for other people. So God's loveness, God's kindness and God's love toward us should should change the way that we act. All right, any questions on Titus? All right, 2 Timothy was written around 67 AD. In this book, Paul is drawn to review his life and ministry and um one to show I think Timothy what real success looks like. What what does spiritual success look like? And so he does several things in this letter. He he talks about how he longs to see Timothy, chapter 1, verse 4. He wrestles with being deserted by Hymenaeus and Alexander. Um, 
chapter 1, verse 15. He gives thanks for his friendships, chapter 1, 16 through 18. And he anticipates death. Let's look at that. 2 Timothy chapter 4. Familiar, um, familiar passage, but let me read that for you. Chapter 4, verse 6. For I am already being poured out as a drink offering, and the time of my departure has come. I have fought the good fight. I have finished the course. I have kept the faith. In the future there is laid up for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award to me on that day, and not only to me, but to also to all who have loved His appearing. This was probably written so near the end of his life that Paul gives a um, kind of a wide-angle view for us to see what is a successful ministry. And so the purpose of 2 Timothy seems to be, Paul, Paul wrote to show... Timothy how to continue his ministry in his ministry to stir up his gifts and to preach the gospel. The outline for that is on the back page for you. Three lessons that we should um, learn from 2 Timothy, at least three lessons. Number one, Christian leaders must be faithful despite personal costs. Christian leaders must be faithful despite personal costs. Paul actually invites Timothy to suffer with him. Look at chapter 3, verse 12. Chapter 3, verse 12. Indeed, all who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus will be persecuted, but evil men and impostors will proceed from bad to worse, deceiving and being deceived. How often do we think of suffering as something that we would be invited to do? something that we would be invited to do for the sake of God's glory, for the sake of representing the Gospel. Paul's saying to Timothy, no matter what the situation, you need to continue on despite any suffering that may occur, any opposition that may come as a result of your ministry. And so he gives him several challenges. Chapter 3, verse 14, continue in what you have learned. Chapter 4, verse 2, this This seems to be one of the main commands. Look at that with me. Chapter 4, verse 2. Preach the Word, Timothy. Be ready in season and out of season. Reprove, rebuke, exhort with great patience and instruction. He goes on to say in verse 5 that he needs to keep his head about him in all situations. Um, And so, when we're tempted to throw in the towel with regard to our ministry, we should consider that our witness in the midst of suffering is actually something that God can and often does use. And so that means that if we don't see that sort of thing regularly, if we don't understand that suffering is a part of being a believer, then we ought to read some good biographies and listen to the testimony of some current missionaries who who are suffering difficult situations. And then also, in times of suffering, we should recount God's faithfulness in our own lives. Think back to the times when God has has rescued you from a certain situation and uh, recognize that God is faithful. All right, second lesson we should learn from 2 Timothy is that Christian life and ministry is one of endurance. Paul says we should expect hardship. We just read that in chapter... Um, chapter 3. We should expect it. If you're a believer, then you should expect persecution. And often, that persecution doesn't... Or I should say, that persecution does not necessarily come in the form of physical persecution. Okay? Um, Look at chapter 2, verse 14, because I think it comes in more ways than that, including divisions and quarrels. People separating themselves from you because of your stand for the Gospel. Chapter 2, verse 14, "...remind them of these things and solemnly charge them in the presence of God not to wrangle about words which is useless and leads to the ruin of the hearers. Be diligent to present yourself approved to God as a workman who does not need to be ashamed, accurately handling the word of truth. But avoid worldly and empty chatter, for it will lead to further ungodliness." And then look down to verse 24. The Lord's bondservant must not be quarrelsome, but be kind to all, able to teach, patient when wronged, 
with gentleness correcting those who are in opposition, if perhaps God may grant them repentance, leading to the knowledge of the truth, and they may come to their senses and escape from the snare of the devil, having been held captive by him to do his will. In 1 Corinthians, Paul says that that the message of the gospel has both a sweet and a deadly smell to it. It has a sweet smell to those who are accepting it, to those who are receiving it, to those who have received it. But it has a deadly smell. It's an aroma of death to those who are perishing. And so you can expect that if you are standing with Christ on behalf of the Gospel, that you will receive opposition. And so Christian life and ministry is one of endurance. And then thirdly, the Gospel is trustworthy. The gospel is trustworthy. Five times in the pastoral epistles, Paul refers to trustworthy sayings. Four of the five times he's speaking about the gospel message itself. In 2 Timothy 2, which was probably an early hymn by Paul, the promised life and reign with Christ serves as a motivation for enduring suffering or, or specifically his bondage in chains and suffering like a criminal. So, the gospel is to be uh, protected. The gospel is to be served. The gospel is to be preached. That's what Paul's talking about in these three letters. So, after Paul was finished with his life, was ministry worth it? Was it really worth it for him to go through what he went through? All of the suffering that he had to endure, all of the personal opposition. I think Paul would say that it was worth it, and that's why he finished his life and said, I have fought the good fight. The good fight. It's a good thing for me to fight for the sake of the gospel. All right, any questions on these three books? All right. I want to use the rest of our time to respond to to, uh, one specific question that came up last week with regard to the women's role in the church. So let me ask the primary question that was asked last week. And then I want to look at a fundamental principle that's laid down by Paul in the Scriptures. And then we'll look at some specific texts about the woman's role in the church. And then I'll allow you to ask some follow-up questions if there's time. The question was, why can't a woman read the Scripture in church? In our church, we allow women to pray in public. We allow women to sing solos, which could be could be argued that that's a form of teaching. And we'll get to why that's important, That whether it's a role of teaching or not. Um, we also allow women to teach other women. And we allow women to teach children. So, why can't a woman read the Scripture in church? And are these other things right? I mean, are we going too far? in some of these other areas by allowing them to publicly pray and to teach and so on. First of all, I want to begin with a principle, and that is that men and women have different roles, different functions. And I'm not just talking about in the church. I'm talking about at home, uh, in the world, uh, and what we'll specifically be talking about in the church. They do have different functions. Turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 12, because here's where the the principle is laid out for us by the Apostle. And what we should see from this is that God has given every member of His universal body, both man and woman, He's given them gifts, which He intends them to use for the edification of the church. Will someone read verses 7-11? through 11? For us, thank you, Joan. Chapter twelve, verses seven through eleven.
Alright, so what we saw there is that the Spirit gives a variety of gifts for the sake of the church. And so as believers, we have many different ways that we can serve the Holy Spirit. That each of us have uh, different sorts of gifts. Some have gifts of knowledge, others have gifts of faith, others have gifts of giving and mercy. And there's no distinction as to who gets these gifts. Whether you're a Jew or a Gentile, whether you're a slave or a free person, whether you're a man or a woman. And the purpose of these gifts is that we use them for the common good of the church. That we use them for the sake of the, the body. Look at verse 7. But to each one is given the manifestation of the Spirit. For what reason? For the common good. Okay, so specifically in our, in our um, what we're talking about in our uh, realm here, we're talking about the church. So it's used for the, for the common good of the church. So that's why the Spirit gives us gift. In fact, First Peter chapter 4, verse 10, Peter writes, As each has received a gift, use it to serve one another. So the Spirit, if He's given you a gift, He doesn't expect you to squelch that gift or, or to not to use it. He expects you to use it. And um, so, if a person's gifts are to be used for the congregation as a whole, then why can't a woman use her gift of knowledge to teach, uh, uh, of teaching to minister to the congregation as a whole? I mean, if, if a woman has a gift of teaching, and can a woman get the gift of teaching? Okay. okay, the Spirit gives all sorts of gifts, and there's no distinction. So, yes, she can. So, why can't she use it to minister to the congregation as a whole? The answer is that God is, has given a specific authority structure. Just like from the beginning, man and woman were created equal. They were equal in value, and they still are. But they were distinct in their roles, right? Did Eve have the same role as Adam had? Did Adam have the same role as Eve had? No, but they were equal in value before God. So that's where we need to start with this original or, or this this uh, foundational principle that is that men and women are equal before God as far as value is concerned but they're different with regard to role right we saw that from the very beginning in Genesis that continues on now in our day there has been a call for egalitarianism which is the idea that because men and women are equal then they should be allowed to carry out the same roles and functions Okay, so, so the problem with that sort of mentality is that if we adopt that, we have to ignore what the New Testament says about roles of men and women. Turn to First Timothy chapter two. Okay, now that we've seen that there's a diversity of role or diversity of gifts given, First Timothy chapter two. Now we want to see. Why there are different roles and what are they? Chapter 2, verse 8. Paul writes, Therefore I want the men in every place to pray, lifting up holy hands without wrath and dissension. Likewise, I want women to adorn themselves with proper clothing, modestly and discreetly, not with braided hair and gold or pearls or costly garments, but rather by means of good works, as is proper for women making a claim to godliness. A woman must quietly receive instruction with entire submissiveness. But I do not allow a woman to teach or exercise authority over a man, but to remain quiet. For it was Adam who was first created, and then Eve. And it was not Adam who was deceived, but the woman being deceived fell into transgression. But women will be preserved through the bearing of children if they continue in faith, in love, and sanctity with self-restraint. Apparently, during this time, the church that Timothy is pastoring has been hounded by some false teachers who were seeking to harm the church. Now, we don't know the exact nature of the false teaching, but Paul seems to address dissensions that were going on inside the church over trivial things. And so it seems that these false teachers were, at the very least, encouraging women to throw off the long-held biblical roles of women in favor of this new newly adopted idea of egalitarianism. Okay, Because men and women are equal in value, and they are, then they should be equal in roles. They should be able, allowed to do whatever men do. 
And so this is probably why Paul talks about women not adorning themselves with gaudy apparel, verses 8 through 10. Not talking about specifics that you can't ever wear gold or that sort of thing. He's saying flamboyant dress in that time in the ancient Near East could sometimes signal a woman's desire to be independent. And at the very most, it could actually show that they are desiring to usurp authority. That, that this type of woman was trying to be independent from her husband. And so he tells Timothy to teach women to be submissive to their divinely ordained role rather than rebellious. And then he exhorts them in verse 11, and this is an important verse that we need to break down here, that they should quietly receive instruction with entire submissiveness. Every phrase here is important. First, I want to look at the main verb, and that is receive instruction. They should receive instruction. Now, this is unusual for that day because for Jewish thought during that time, women were not uh, to participate in formal learning. And here Paul's saying that women are to receive instruction. Secondly, he says that they should do it how? He says they should do it Quietly, he, the woman must quietly receive instruction. That they're not to be teachers of the church is, I think, what that means. We'll talk about what, why they can't be teachers of the church later. Third, with entire submissiveness. This shows that, that while they are equal in value, they are different in roles. So it needs, there needs to be some submissiveness between or, or front from a woman to a man. And that, um, that should basically encourage leadership in a man. So from here, Paul gives two restrictions. Okay, So if that's the principle that women are to, to receive instruction quietly and in entire submissiveness, then, then here are the restrictions that he gives in, verses, or in verse 12. But I do not allow a woman to teach or exercise authority over man, but to remain quiet. What are the two restrictions? What's the first one? Do not allow a woman to teach. And what's the second one? To have authority over a man. Alright, so let's look at these two. First of all, teaching. Now, teaching in the New Testament generally refers to the authoritative, careful transmission of the tradition of Jesus Christ. So, it is teaching generally has to do with taking the text of Scripture and then explaining it. So, what Paul is saying is this type of teaching cannot be done by every believer. And that's why, um, first of all, it's a special gift given to certain people. Now, I said that it is given to woman, uh, women as well as men, but... But we have to admit at the very least that not every single person in the church, okay, let's just think of men, not every single man in the church is able to teach, right? Okay, so, so that means that we've been given different roles. Now, Paul is, is being authoritative in this instruction because he's saying it should not be done by a woman. Now, does that mean that women cannot teach at all? Okay. Notice the qualification in verse 12. But I, I do not allow a woman to teach. And if we stopped there, we'd have to say, at all. But that's not where Paul stops. Okay. The object of this verse, they are not allowed to teach. Okay. Skip down a little while after you get to past the second verbal phrase, which is or exercise authority. What's the, what's the object there? Over a man. So, so, I do not, we can do it like this. I do not allow a woman to teach dot, 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 over a man. That's the restriction that Paul is putting on, uh, on, uh, on the church at large. So it doesn't mean that a woman can't teach anyone. That would completely go against what Paul said in Titus chapter 2, which says that older women are to do what for younger women? They're supposed to teach them or instruct them, right? And women are supposed to be teaching their children at home. And so Paul would be going against um, what he had said in other places, not, that doesn't make sense at all, that women would not be allowed to teach at all. So that's not what he's saying. So that means that if a woman has been gifted in the area of teaching, then she can and should use it in the local church for the common good, 
um, but in a way that would glorify God. And, and specifically, Paul's saying, not over men, um, but instead should be over either other women or children in the church. Okay, the second restriction for women in the church. Okay, I do not allow a woman to teach, and then we could do it like this. I do not allow a woman to dot 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 exercise authority over a man. That's the second restriction. This has to do with the governing or ruling function. Okay, so we could think of the the role of a pastor. Um, there should not be women pastors, and this is most clearly seen in Paul's instructions which he gives to pastors when he calls them overseers. They should not have the overseeing role in the church. In 1 Timothy 3, 5, he speaks of pastors caring for the church and he says they do it in the same way that they manage their houses. So women should not have a position of management in the church, uh, at least over a man, which is his restriction. Um, so, why why the restrictions? Let's ask the text and Paul here, why the restrictions? Okay, If a woman has the ability and the gift to teach, then why restrict them to, to not be able to teach over men? Verses 13 and 14 give us the answer. Paul gives two reasons why a woman should not teach a man. For it was Adam who was first created and then Eve. And it was not Adam who was deceived, but the woman being deceived fell into transgression. First reason that a woman cannot teach a man is because of the creation order. Paul says that one of the reasons that man was created before woman was not because that he was better than her. Okay, again, back to they are equal in value, but because God had designed a purpose for him and for her. What was the purpose of the woman according to Genesis 2:18? That she would be a what? a helper suitable for him, right? That was the design of the woman. That was the purpose, to be a helper, a complement to him. It doesn't have to do with inferiority, again, but rather has to do with the original creation structure. So the first re- reason a woman should not take authority or teach over a man is because of the original creation structure. second reason is found in verse 14, and that is Adam was not deceived, Eve was. It was not Adam who was deceived, but the woman being deceived fell into transgression. Now, this is a difficult verse. Some have argued that it means that women are generally more gullible than men, that they are more easily deceived. Is that true? Okay, careful. Yeah, yeah. Not representative of all women, some women. And uh, definitely, there are many men who are more gullible than women, right? More easily deceived. So, the argument goes, because the woman was deceived or more gullible, then that means that women are restricted from teaching because they could fall into uh, believing and teaching a false doctrine. Okay, so there are two problems with that sort of argument. Number one, there's no indication that Eve was, that, that her being deceived is representative of all women of all time. As if Adam did not have in him the gullibility or the ability to the um, the capability of being deceived. In other words, if Sa- if Satan the serpent came to Adam, could Adam have been deceived by his argument? Yes, right. He could have been. So so for the first reason is that that does not necessarily mean that that all women are more gullible or more easily deceived than men. The second reason that there's a problem with this argument that says the argument that says that that women are more uh, gullible and therefore could participate in false teaching is that if Paul thought that women were more susceptible to being deceived and that they were more susceptible to false teaching, then why would he tell older women to teach younger women? Wouldn't that be a problem? Or why would he tell women to teach children at home or at the church? Why, why would he do that? Oh, it's okay. Those, those are lesser people and, and those people don't matter as much. Would Paul ever say that? Not at all. So that, that argument I don't think is valid. And so I would say that that, that that interpretation of verse 14 is not right, that women are more gullible or more easily deceived. So 
perhaps a better interpretation, the one that I feel more comfortable with, is is um, is that the serpent approached Eve, not Adam. Okay, and what this means is that that um, he was trying to get at the heart of the authority structure that God had laid out. Do you realize that the serpent never said a word to Adam? As far as is recorded in Scripture, he never said a word to Adam. So what he was doing was, I believe he was usurping the authority structure that God had set up. And that is the point. When Satan came to Eve and lied to her, he wasn't doing it because she was more gullible or more easily deceived. He was undermining the very target, the very authority structure of what God had set up. So instead of going directly to Adam, he deliberately defied God's created order and went to Eve. And now she became the spokesperson for Adam, the leader of Adam, right? Did she not lead him into sin? He should have been leading her, not into sin, but he should have been leading her. Instead, he was following and she became his defender as well. So here's what I think Paul means here. Adam was not deceived in the sense that Satan didn't approach him and deal directly with him. Instead, Satan went directly to Eve. She was deceived. He went directly to her and she fell into transgression. So, I think the statement has more to do with with Satan's strategy rather than the relative weakness of women over men. The serpent defied God's created order and led the humans to do the same. And as God's creation, we have been defying God's created order and authority structure ever since. So the structure that Paul gives for the church, where he defines the roles and functions, are good for men and women and for the church. God's saying that these, this authority structure is actually a good thing for you. Okay, don't don't see it as some sort of that's what we often see as restrictions are actually bad things, but God is saying actually restrictions are good because I'm keeping you from something that would be worse if you ignored it. All right, so let me let me um, have you turn to First Corinthians chapter eleven and answer the question: Can a woman rightfully pray in church? Is that a position of authority over a man for for a woman to pray? Is that a position of teaching? Well, it seems from this passage that Paul says that that, that women can pray in church. And um, I'm going to have to go through this last part quickly. Chapter 11, verse 2. Now I praise you because you remember me in everything and hold firmly to the traditions just as I delivered them to you. But I want you to understand that Christ is the head of every man and the man is the head of a woman and God is the head of Christ. Every man who has something on his head while praying or prophesying disgraces his head. But every woman who has her head uncovered while praying or prophesying prophesying disgraces her head, for she is one and the same as the woman whose head is shaved. I don't have time to read the whole passage, but it seems from verse 5 that Paul is saying that women are able to pray in church. Right? Saying that, when they pray, they sh- they should have their head covered, and I'll talk about what that means in just a second. Can I hold off on your questions? I got to rush through here. Okay, so what about where Paul said that that women are to be silent? Specifically, First Corinthians chapter fourteen, First Timothy chapter two. Both of them said that women should be silent. Um, some say that this means that women should never talk in public services. But that doesn't make sense with what Paul said in chapter 11, that while they're praying and prophesying, they should have these head coverings on. I think rather what he's talking about is they shouldn't be judging internal affairs. They should not be in a position of authority. That's what the idea of quiet means. That's why I think it means in 1 Timothy 2 as well. And so they should not be allowed to to um, participate in, in that category of authoritative leadership. Now, with regard to head coverings, Paul's making two points in this chapter. First of all, he's saying women should embrace their identity as a woman. I think that's the idea of head coverings. Um, that it would be dishonorable for a man to wear a head covering because he would be confusing and rebelling his, against his own identity. And it, it would be dishonorable for a woman not to wear one. Or, in other words, that, that she would confuse the roles or try to usurp man's position. Okay, so... 
Uh, secondly, Paul, I think, is saying in this chapter that women should willingly submit to male leadership. That's why in verse 3 it says that women are the glory of man, that, that Jesus is the glory of God. In other words, that he, he exists to honor God in the same way women should exist to honor men. And one of the ways that they do that is by keeping these identity markers and these structures with regard to roles functions the same or, or um, as the scriptures tell so um, so Paul is not talking again about being superior or inferior here with regard to the genders his point is that women were created to glorify God in a specific way and that is to help affirm the male leadership in the church specifically is what we're talking about all right so that's one of the ways that women glorify God they honor God men by by encouraging public leadership of them. And as for head coverings, Paul's not mandating, I think, a particular item of clothing. Rather, he's just saying that there needs to be a clear distinction with regard to identity and function between man and woman in the church. All right. Now, let me give you a summary principle. Then I want to talk about some practical guidelines of ways that women can and should serve in the church. And then I'll answer that question that we started with. First of all, summary principle. That is that women are free to serve the church in any any capacity except where that service would violate the biblical principle of male leadership. Specifically, in those two restrictions that Paul gave, what were they? Teaching and exercising authority over a man. Okay, so, so women can do anything that they have the gifts to do in the church for the common good except where it goes against the authority of male leadership. So that means that women should, can and should vote. Some churches use what's called family voting, and they have one vote per, per family that the woman should talk to her husband. He makes the vote on behalf of the whole family. Well, I think that would um, not necessarily be a correct according to Scripture. Just because they can't lead as a pastor doesn't mean that they shouldn't expose and expose error and promote sound doctrine. So it should be voting. Deaconess, we talked about this last week, so I won't spend any time here. Public praying. Um, occasionally on Wednesday nights, we'll have congregational prayer and um, we'll take volunteers to pray aloud. And I specifically say that either a man or a woman is is able to, to pray publicly. All right, so so you may feel uncomfortable about that, but you, it would be completely biblical for you to do to, to pray in that situation, ladies. To uh, give a public testimony, that would be completely appropriate uh, as long as as a woman embraces her identity as a woman and doesn't try to use the opportunity to substantively, substantively teach or have authority. Uh, singing a solo, same sort of idea, I think. Teaching and leading other women, we already talked about that. Um, teaching children, of course, and countless other areas. Of service, we need women in our church who will pray. We need women who will encourage, who will visit the sick, who will evangelize the lost, who will contribute to missions, who will encourage our missionaries, who will become, who will welcome visitors, who will sing, who will cook. There's all sorts of ministry for women to participate in. Now, with regard to scriptural uh, scripture reading, like we have each uh, worship service. I would say that there's no prohibition in Scripture for women to read Scripture in front of the church because I don't think that it is an area of teaching and I don't think that it is an area of having authority over a man. However, I would suggest that we don't begin to allow it for another biblical reason. And that is because reading Scripture in front of church can be misunderstood both inside and outside the church. Okay, so I say inside, I mean our members, when we see this, we may come across with the wrong idea. And when other people come into our church, they see a woman reading the Scriptures. Um, many people might see that as a form of teaching, even if it is not. All right, And so they might think that we are slipping into egalitarianism, and that we don't affirm male leadership. So I would say with regard to Scripture reading, that we have the, the, we have the freedom as a church to allow it, 
but we should restrict restrict ourselves so that someone else will not stumble. Paul talks about this in Romans 14 and 15. That that there are lots of things that we're free to do as Christians. That, that there's lots of activities we can participate in. But if if we're going to participate in something that could potentially cause a weaker person to stumble, then we should refrain from it for the sake of the Gospel. And so that's why I would suggest that because it's taken the wrong way. And we even had a woman read Scripture publicly in this class, right? And we've had it before. It happens all the time. But in a, a place where a woman stands up in the pulpit and reads Scripture, that could be taken by a weaker brother or sister as authority or teaching. And we don't want to offend them or to think that that we are trying to become egalitarian. The last question I want to address is, when does a boy become too old for a woman to be his teacher in the church? Okay, the principle again is that a woman should not teach a man or have authority over a man. I think this is a cultural thing based on the society. Um, but here I think is a good rule, th- good rule of thumb that probably transcends all cultures. And that is, if a young man is still under the direction and authority of his mother at home, and she's still teaching him, then he could be under the authority and direction of a woman at church and still could be taught. So that means that I would not have a problem personally. The practical application from that would be I wouldn't have a problem personally with a woman teaching even a high schooler. Now, some some kids, some boys stay at home until they're in their 30s. That's that's a whole other issue. But um, if there is a, a, a situation where there's some doubt, okay, this seems to be... You know he may be too old for for this then then we simply remove the young man from under the teaching of that woman. It'd be better for us to be cautious in that situation than um, frivolous or or um, apathetic all right Trish oh that's not Trish that's Gail Gail. I yeah, I didn't feel like I um I had thought through that very well before that question came up, and I'm glad you asked that. So um, I think we needed to, to look through that. Vicki? Um, if we have time, I want to affirm that having a woman at the pulpit does seem wrong to me because it is the pulpit. It represents the man. It's the man's authority. So I agree with that. And as I said, God's ways are not our ways, so we need to accept that. And one last question, though, is what about the situation where there's an individual man and an individual woman? And uh-huh. Um, right. Aquila and Priscilla were um, apparently teaching. Was it Paul? Apollos. Apollos. Yeah, yeah. So, um, yeah, that's a, that's a good question. I would say um, that that I, it pro- I'd probably uh, be careful in that sort of situation. Um, right. Right. Yeah. Um, I guess it depends again on the on the motive. Uh, well, I guess no, it, it doesn't necessarily depend on the motive. I have to think about that one. That's a good question, Bill. Yeah. Yeah. All right. Was there another question, Sandra? Um, I think God set it up this way for male leadership and mm-hmm. women to be under their husbands in church because it carries over in the home and it's a smooth transition. If you're doing it one place, then you're more likely that you know naturally do it. Yeah. Yeah, it's part of the created order, I would say. So it's really part of every, really part of our, our lives in the world. And Trish? Oh, Elliot? Elizabeth Elliot? Yeah. 
Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, um, the other thing is we're talking specifically about in the church. So if she were up in the in the position of leadership, so I, I'd have to think about that the question there for Vicky. So that may hopefully we'll I'll address that next week because I think about that. Yes, Jonathan. Well, as a partial response to that question, uh, a woman can say, "This is what I've learned from Scripture, and it would be good for you to, you know, seek authority." Verify that. Yeah. Yeah. Trish. Yeah. Yeah. All right. Well, uh, hopefully this uh, spurred some good thought in your mind and maybe some further study for yourself as well. Let's pray and we'll be dismissed. We have about six minutes. Lord, thank you for uh, giving us instruction, and we thankful, we're thankful that you are not the author of confusion, but that because of our society and the way that our minds work, we often um, we often uh, change your truth, and and um, we cloud it sometimes, and and so that's why we have so much confusion uh, with regard to some of these issues, and so we pray that you help us to get back to what the Scriptures say, understand them clearly, and then uh, build our lives around them. Thank you for the time that we have to give our praise and honor to you whom we love. And to hear more from your word, we pray that you would help us in Jesus' name. Amen.